that area right there was very hotly contested between the British and the French. Because of the lobster. Because of the lobster. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone wanted the best lobster. Yeah. This is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. I love this national park that we're doing this fun facts episode on because it gives me a chance to pull out all of my sea shanties. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so much fun. You would be amazed how many sea shanties John knows. Oh, my gosh. And as a side effect of that, how many sea shanties our six-year-old knows? (laughs) It's true. Oh, I have a whole Pandora station dedicated to sea shanties and Irish pub rock. And both stations have a lot of the same songs eventually after it runs out of whatever algorithm it wants to do. So, And then the six-year-old is like, a rose tattoo and a rose tattoo. <laughs> Climbing up the top sail, I lost my leg. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of fun stuff. You know, we might sing Brandy as well during this episode. Also, yo the... Yo-ho, uh, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Oh, that's a good one. Really, really bad, bad eggs. eggs. Really bad eggs. Yeah. Did you just say really bad eggs? I said really bad eggs. <laughs> awesome. Oh, man. And then the ship that sunk not coming to me but it will halfway through the episode the the one on uh, lake superior or whatever exactly everybody's like come on you know what it is i don't know what i <laughs> <laughs> we know a lot of sea shanties oh yes. that one's gonna bug me that's gonna it's gonna come to you halfway through it the is. episode okay and then you're gonna just bust it out randomly okay. when we're talking about something i'll do my best but we have not yet revealed who what we're talking about and today is all about the fun facts for Acadia National Park. And fun fact zero is that you can sing any sea shanty you want while exploring Acadia National Park. It's true. It enhances the experience. So I'm excited about today because Acadia National Park is probably way cooler than anybody thought. It's already cool because you get to sing sea shanties and it brings out the pirate in all of us as we're walking through the charming town of Bar Harbor and everything like that. But there are some really neat things that are unique to Acadia that I want to talk about today. So let's jump right in. And we're going to talk about fun fact number one in a second. I'll get to it. But to set the stage a little bit, Acadia's geology is just fascinating. And one of the reasons why I find it so fascinating is because a lot of it is a complete mystery. Okay. And so to set the stage, the oldest rock the oldest rock formation, the oldest type of rock that they have in Acadia is 500 million years old. And so compared to some of the other national parks around the country that we've already done some of these fun facts episodes on, you know, some of these national parks have rocks that are a billion plus years old. And so Acadia does not have that ancient of a rock record. Okay. That's what I was wondering, because all of those time frames kind of melt together. Yeah. It's all just a really <laughs> long time ago. So that's relatively... Relatively newer, young. Newer rock. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But what that means is 
is that the maximum amount of geologic history that we could have in Acadia is 500 million years of geologic history and geologic records, okay? Like we were talking about with the Grand Canyon and some of these other episodes, you have layer upon layer upon layer. Each one details a different type of time frame. You know, you have lots of different things going on in different layers of rock. Of the possible 500 million years of geologic history, how much is missing, do you think? Oh, I wouldn't even venture a guess. <laughs> I don't know. More than 450 million years is missing. So, so there's no layers? <laughs> is that what you're saying? So it's crazy. So that's fun fact number one. I'll, I'll kind of explain this a little bit. But fun fact number one is of its possible 500 million years of geologic history, Acadia is missing more than 450 million years of it. There's a really big cross current or like an undercurrent <laughs> that's just sucking Acadia back into the sea. Yeah. You know, that's why it's so interesting. It's so kind of, it's kind of incredible. And I don't know, it, it's bloggles the mind a little bit because imagine Acadia was a person, say I'm Acadia and I'm doing my family history. And I, after extensive research, I finished my family history. And these are the only entries, Abraham, Genghis Khan, mom, dad, and me. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you're related to Genghis Khan. <laughs> that is fascinating. Absolutely. Or Acadia, should I the say? The Mongols. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. So I don't know. It, it's just really interesting because I mean, it just skips millions and millions of years. There's eons that are missing in the geologic history of Acadia, and so. But yes, I put Genghis Khan in there. Yeah, so spice it up a little. Spice it up a little bit. It's pretty amazing. Now, when there is something missing in the geologic record, so let's say you have, you know, Abraham, then Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan and then mom and dad, you know, there's a huge time frame that should be in between those two layers of rock. And what that's called is an unconformity. And here at Acadia, there are three major unconformities that cause us to lose so much of this history. The history here, like I talked about, the oldest rock is only 500 million years old. And so our history here doesn't even go back to Adam and Eve, which is why I put Abraham, you know, because... Oh, that Abraham. Yeah, that ah. Abraham. What Abraham were you <laughs> I don't know. Abraham Abe, Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. Abra <laughs> I don't know. Abraham Lincoln. Or I was just like... Then Genghis you're Khan. Like, yeah, you're Lynch. like Abraham and Genghis Khan. I'm like, that's quite the family tree. <laughs> So. <laughs> yes, exactly. That also means that Abraham's related to Genghis Khan. Yeah. Great yeah. horseman, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, unconformity number one, the oldest rock, we have nothing beyond 500 million years old. Which I feel like is already kind of a surprise because aren't the Appalachians like 300 million years old? Yeah, they're old? super like, old. The they're mountains the, themselves. Yeah, they're the oldest not mountains even the rock in America. Not even like the rock layers, just the mountains themselves. Yeah. So that's why, I don't know, like the Appalachians aren't that close to Maine, but kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it just surprises me that the geologic time doesn't go back further. Yeah, exactly. Besides so, all those unconformities. Like that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's really weird. It's really interesting. And so the fact that it starts at 500 million years is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. And so then, so you've got, it starts at Abraham and then literally 50 million years pass and we don't know what happened there. And then Genghis Khan, and then 410 million years passes, and then it's mom, dad, and me. 
basically. Mm. And so it's crazy. So there's three major gaps there that are really interesting to kind of figure out why there's those gaps. What could have happened during that time? Because literally one of those major gaps is the dinosaurs came and went and Acadia has no record of it. Like the hmm. Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, you know, all of those periods of time happened and Acadia, all of it didn't even happen according to Acadia's historical record. That's cool. Yeah. It was totally wiped off the map or something like that. And so it's really interesting. We're going to talk about this just a little bit, get into it. But I mentioned the oldest rock, 500 million years old. We'll start there. And there's only like three things I have to explain because that's all we have, how Acadia came to be. This 500 million year old rock, a long time ago, it was where? Under a shallow sea. <laughs> yes. Well, actually. Or under N a real sea, probably. The, yeah, the NPS right actually the <laughs> has slightly different language here. They just call it an early ocean. Okay. And so, well, I mean, that makes sense because now it's by the ocean too. So exactly. It probably was covered by a good amount of water. Yes. Or maybe a real ancient ocean. Yeah. Which, oh, that's better. Which it's adds different. a cool, Yeah. Adds something cool into the mix. And so there was a lot of volcanic ash, you know, there's a bunch of things that kind of mixed and fell to the bottom of the ocean. You know, there were some layers and then the pressure down there and all the heat and everything formed it all into one form of rock. And if you listened to our Grand Teton episode where we did the fun facts, we talked about nice, mm -hmm. nice, nice. And the rock here is called Ellsworth Schist. Uh -huh. And so it's very similar to what they have in Grand Teton, where it's kind of like black and white kind of striped rock. And that's the oldest rock that we have here in Acadia. And somehow, we don't even necessarily know how, but somehow the Ellsworth schist made its way from the bottom of this ancient ocean all the way up to sea level, to the top where it is now. And then, boom, 50 million years of nothing. We have no idea what happened. But I don't understand how that just happens. I mean, I don't know enough. Geology is not my thing. Right. But I don't know. It's just. It's really interesting. How do you lose all those layers of time? I think I'll be, I'll be able to propose a pretty solid hypothesis. And. Is this your hypothesis or is this what someone else has come up with? It's not my hypothesis. So I don't want to plagiarize. John's in his little office. So. <laughs> Making hypotheses. So I, I can't necessarily claim that this is the reason for all of the unconformities, but at least for some of them it is. Okay. For certain, the reason why. Okay. I look forward to it. Okay. So then after 50 million years, so now we're up to 450 million years ago, then a fake Christmas country slammed into North America. And huh? Our <laughs> Let's see if you can decode this for everybody. A fake Christmas country? A fake Christmas country. About 450 million years ago, the country or mini continent of Avalonia oh. coll <laughs> collided <laughs> with North America. Like, yeah, that sounds like every book or movie about royalty <laughs> ever. <laughs> Any over the last isn't 10 it like years. Al Aldovia, isn't that the one on Prince's Diaries? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. This, what is it? Albonia? It's Avalonia. Oh, Avalonia. Yes. That Yeah, that's real close to Aldovia. So <laughs> I'm not far yes. off. So in any of these new, these recent 
like last within the fi- last five years, Christmas prints or something along those lines, Netflix or Hallmark. <laughs> Can you tell movies. what I make John do during the Christmas season? He watches so many of those Hallmark channel <laughs> movies with me. So which country is this again? Where is it supposed to be? It's somewhere in Europe. It's, it's by Liechtenstein. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So 450 million years ago, this mini continent of Avalonia collided with North America. And that crashing kind of solidified the schist as the bedrock of Acadia. So that kind of solidified, kind of pushed the schist and made it like the bedrock of Acadia. Now, the next 30 million years after that is from 450 million to 420 million years ago. If you watch it in fast forward, it reminds me of like one of my favorite scenes from the original Ghostbusters movie. And so if you kind of picture it. Which John has completely memorized, by the way. (laughs) Yes, it is my contention that every single line Bill Murray says in that movie is hilarious. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Even from the very beginning when he is just like testing that boy and the girl where uh, to see if they have some type of ESP. And he's just like, this is just not your day. And he shocks the boy. And <laughs> Anyways, the whole movie is hilarious. But there's a scene kind of three-fourths of the way through the movie where the EPA basically released all of the ghosts that they had been catching over the past like six months. And so then they put the Ghostbusters in jail. And then there's all this massive panic about all this crazy things that are happening. And then the mayor of New York City brings the Ghostbusters into his office and he's just like, guys, what's going on here? And then this is the conversation. And so Dr. Peter Venkman tells, you know, the mayor, this is Bill Murray. He's like, this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportions, you know, and then the mayor is like, what do you mean biblical? And then Ray and Venkman and everybody join in and they're like, we're talking like real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, and then Venkman, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. (laughs) And so this 30 million year period of time between 450 million years to 420 million years is just absolutely crazy. Mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. And then like the best lines at that, he's just like, and then Lenny, and if I'm right and we can stop this thing, you would have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. (laughs) 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 It was just so funny. Um, Anyways, Ghostbusters geek out mode right there. It, It was just awesome. But literally during that 30 million year period of time, a giant like chamber of magma floated to the top of the earth and swallowed almost everything that is in Acadia right now. And that's what most of that pink granite is. And so this giant magma chamber came to the top, swallowed tons of this Ellsworth schist. Some of it melted into the magma. Some of it like just like dived down into the magma, kind of like a submarine, but didn't melt all the way. But that's why this granite is all over Acadia because this whole place just got swallowed. Mount Doom exploded and swallowed this How whole area. How is it pink? Okay, we're going to get into that oh, in okay. just a second. Is that a different fun fact? That's a different fun okay, fact. Okay, sorry. But yeah, so Jump I mean, it. but then, so this whole place got swallowed, 
the magma, all the lava, it cooled. It turned into this pink granite, and then it's all history from there. Right after Armageddon basically happened, we have nothing for 410 million years mm. until, you know, basically in geologic terms, yesterday. Yeah. Until literally we know maybe, maybe for the past two and a half million years so from like the beginning of the Pleistocene until now. Basically, we really don't know anything in between, you know, some of these ice ages that happened during the Pleistocene until back. And so, literally, there is so much mystery in the geologic history of Acadia National Park. Interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. It's so much fun. But now, let's get into what we do know. You brought up the granite, and that's fun fact number two, that much of the granite in Acadia National Park is pink. And so that's one of the most striking features that surprised me when I first visited Acadia, you know, was, holy smokes, the coastline is entirely pink. It's pink. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, uh, <laughs> what happened here? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like it fits, but yeah. at the same time it does. It's like Barbie showed up with a bunch of spray paint and just like turned the entire island pink. Yeah. It's so pretty. Ryan Gosling and whoever is the new Barbie girl. Yeah. But why is the granite pink? Because we've been to so many national parks. I mean, Yosemite has tons of granite and it's not pink. You know, you can go to tons of other national parks, these tons of other mountains, and rarely do you see this type of pink granite. And so what is it made of? So what you need to know about this is feldspars. That's what you need to know. Over half the Earth's crust is composed of a single group of minerals known as feldspars. And so if like you went out into your backyard or into a field, you took a shovel out, you know, and you kind of spread the dirt out and kind of analyzed it a little bit, you would see a lot of like little teeny tiny, teeny tiny crystal-like looking rocks. Okay. And a lot of those are feldspars. And they're literally everywhere. And you've probably never heard of them. And they can take many forms and have lots of different chemical compositions and colors. But here in Acadia, the feldspar minerals are mostly bound together by potassium. Okay. Which is funny because like my first thought when I read that and learned that was like, I was like, but bananas are yellow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the one thing I know that has potassium in it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and so these feldspars are bound together by potassium ions. And in all honesty, the granite is more of like an orangey pink. It's not like Barbie pink, like we've been talking about. It's more of like an orangey pink. But it's a still a really cool distinction from other places like Yosemite. And Yosemite granite has potassium feldspar in it. It's just that Acadia is extra super rich in potassium feldspars. Like if you actually do like a chemical test where you do a flame test with potassium, the fire will actually be more of like a lilac color. Hmm. And so the, there's just something about the potassium in this rock that turns it kind with, of... And probably with the magma, because you said the magma like took over that whole area and stuff. So uh -huh. I wonder if maybe some of the heat from that ignited some right. potassium feldspars. It totally could, which, if which you're is saying, awesome. If you're saying when you add heat, it changes, you know, you can see the color. Maybe. It changes the chemical composition. I don't know. Does it work that way? I don't know. Write to us and let us know if you're yeah. a chemist and if you know. But I did, but then I was like, I wonder what other, what other colors, what things burn. Because yeah. some of these feldspars, some of them are potassium bound, some of them are sodium bound, and some of them are calcium bound. 
and sodium burns yellow and mm. calcium burns more of an orange red. Hmm. But copper burns blue green. Yeah. Which I thought was cool. So I don't know if the flame test has anything to do with the coloration of the well, granite. When you see like copper deposits, like there's a bunch down by Moab, those rocks are blue green. Yeah, that's true. So, so it I feel like it has some type of correspondence. Yeah. And maybe with some of the way that the chemicals oxidize yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah. There's probably Absolutely. different ways to explain yeah. this wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we have just covered five of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But bringing it back to to fun fact number two, the granite is pink. It's totally beautiful. And if anybody asks, and if you're wondering when you get there, why is it pink? It's because of the potassium in the feldspars. Nice. Cool. Okay. So fun fact number three is going to take us a little bit into the causes of these unconformities because it actually gets into a lot of the way that Acadia has been shaped. And so let's get back to the mystery of why there are such huge gaps in the geologic history. What would be the cause? What could literally pick up entire layers of earth and make them disappear? Well, that's what I was asking you. And you said you had a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that isn't really a hypothesis because it's been proven for at least some of this Okay. Some of these inconformities. And the answer is glaciers. Hmm. Let okay. Me, so fun fact number three is that glaciers were instrumental in shaping Acadia National Park into what we see today and caused most of the unconformities in its history. So glaciers have their hands all over Acadia National Park. Evidence shows that there were massive ice sheets all over northern North America during at least the last two to three million years. And each time glaciers flowed over the area, they carved off whatever was on top, along with any evidence of whatever came before it or whatever did it. Mm. So these glaciers... So like a massive removal of layers. Yeah, exactly. glaciers moving across. Yeah, it's literally like when you skin a potato or something Peel? like that. Yeah. When you peel a potato. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess it is potato skin. But potato skin. Skinning a potato skinning, sounds gross. There's more than one way to skin a potato. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so what these glaciers are doing when it's, it's like a peeling a potato. Every time the glacier would flow over Acadia or wherever Acadia is at, the glacier just peels off the top layer. And then where does it go? It goes into the ocean and the ocean takes it from there. Interesting. And so that just happened over and over and over and over again here in Acadia and all over northern North America. But especially, I think probably because of the proximity of the ocean where it just washes it away. Yeah. That's probably why a lot of it just like suddenly disappeared. So these glaciers, they literally pried and carved off layer after layer after layer, 400 million years of layers of earth so that that's why we have that massive gap. Just over and over and over again, glaciers would do this until it got to that granite area where we have the all this that magma chamber that was there that sucked in the Ellsworth schist and everything. The ultimate battle between glacier and granite is something you see play out in the parks a lot. It's true. The it's glaciers awesome. have a hard time getting rid of the granite. It's like when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but generally speaking, 
given enough time and enough glaciers, the glaciers will do its dirty work. Glaciers are very persistent. They are very persistent. And glaciers carved out the mountains and lakes and valleys all over Acadia National Park. But they also left some really interesting evidence that makes it so that we can for sure know, okay, this was the work of glaciers. And some oh, of them- can I guess a couple? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, first of all, um, you have Bubble Rock, yep. which is up on the bubbles, yep. the South Bubble. And it's just a giant boulder sitting there. Yep. And uh, it's a it's a glacial erratic. It's just a, a boulder that got carried. Man, you even got the, the term right. Booyah, I worked at Glacier Bay. <laughs> you think I know about glaciers. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I was Nailed a park it. ranger in a glacier park. So the other one that I can think of really off the top of my head is on Scudic Point, mm-hmm. you can see the crisscrosses. Mm. Right? The, the striations. Yeah, the striations. Like, I remember that from sitting there and watching the waves and stuff. And and I think a lot of the rocks in Acadia are that way, where yeah. you can see the grinding. Yes. Ash, two gold stars. Booyah. Actually, a thumbs up and a gold star. Oh, thumbs up. We didn't... Well, you don't know which one's High five. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to do it like that episode of, of The Office when it's beach day. Yeah. And <laughs> Michael asks Pam, so who's who's winning? And she's like, well, you gave Jim a gold star. You gave Dwight a thumbs up. But And he's like, is there a legend? Is there a way to, you know? And she's like, I don't think so. Just look, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love it. Let's talk about the different things because you covered a few of the most easily decipherable clues that glaciers were here. So the striations, what those are is so as a glacier moves over land, basically it's this moving, incredibly heavy river, basically, but it's solid. And so when it picks up stuff, it'll pick up rocks and things like that, and it will literally grind them into whatever they're flowing over. It just over. drags it. Yeah. It's like sandpaper. Yeah, Exa- it's exactly any, right. Any surface it's going across because all this rock and debris and everything is trapped underneath the glacier. Mm-hmm. And as it moves, it just... Right. You know, and, just and some of these surfaces it. will be like really super smooth because whatever the glacier was grinding in were like really fine sands mm-hmm. and things like that. But every once in a while, it'll pick up like a larger boulder and just like massive scratches. You know, yeah. it's just like, what's her name? The carved my key into the side. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like someone keyed Acadia. Exactly. The glacier keyed Acadia. Exactly. And so she she carved. Yes, she keyed it's the Carrie Underwood. Carrie Underwood. I don't know why. That's, she's like your favorite singer. <laughs> I do John love Carrie, Carrie Underwood. Underwood. I do love her. Yeah. So she it's like keying the side of somebody's car. You can see these massive scratches in the glaciers or in, in the granite peaks and stuff like that and he's like yes and you can actually tell which way the glaciers were flowing based on where those scratches are going yeah now sometimes like you were talking about with these glacier erratics sometimes these glaciers will pick up something and instead of grinding it on the bottom it'll pick it up and then just leave it somewhere yeah it moves it for a minute and then <laughs> drops it yeah it's so weird and so you'll see things and it's just like you'll look at something and it's just like I don't think that belongs there. How in the world did that get there? You know, it's like going to a wedding and seeing like a rubber chicken on the wedding cake. You know, it's just like you look at it, you cock your head to the side. Is that and you're like, from a movie? Where did you get that idea? 
I, I, I don't know. Fozzie Bear's wedding. I don't know. He loves rubber chickens. Okay. <laughs> but no, that's one of the craziest things because literally you'll be driving or moving around Acadia National Park and you'll see these giant boulders in random places. And you're just like, I have the only way that it could have been there is just a glacier dropped it there. And that's the only explanation for it. And so yeah. that's really neat. Two last things I want to cover. So on the sides of the bubbles, mm-hmm. North and South Bubble by Jordan Pond, on both sides of Jordan Pond, there's some mountains and the bubbles are like right in the middle, but there's a big U shape on both sides of the bubbles. Mm-hmm. And that's very glacier-esque. Glaciers do everything in U shapes. Yeah. And so you'll see lots of U-shaped valleys in, in Acadia. But also, I think one of my favorite things that I realized as I was doing this research for this was cobblestones. Oh. Yeah. Cobbles- I didn't think about the that. The cobblestones yeah. around the shoreline of Acadia, and there will be lots of different sizes and lots of different textures and things of, of these cobblestones. Well, there's cobblestone beaches. Yeah. Exactly. There's a cobblestone bridge that they made out of the cobblestones. Yep, exactly. That's one of my favorite things about Acadia, actually. I love the cobblestones. It's so charming. Yes. But these cobblestones, sometimes at different beaches, will tell different stories. And depending on how sheltered the cove is or the shoreline is where you're at, if you're not sheltered at all and you just, and the beach or the shoreline is accepting the full brunt force of the ocean, then you know, a lot of times the rocks are just, they're not being gently molded into those tinier, more rounded cobblestones that you kind of picture in your mind when you think of like the charming cobblestones. But in some of these more uh, covey areas where it's a little bit more sheltered, you'll get the really charming smaller cobblestones and you can hear them as the waves go in and out. You can hear the cobblestones. I love that. That's my favorite sound. Yes. The cobblestone beaches, like um, I really like Little Hunter's Beach. You can go down there and you just hear the cobblestones rolling around in the waves. Yes. As the waves come in and out. Like I could sit there and just listen for hours. Yeah. So fantastic. It's really cool. But at a lot of other places where the national park might be landlocked or where the glaciers receded, but it's a landlocked place, you'll have glacial moraines. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll have big piles of rocks that these glaciers left behind. But because it's right on the ocean, you know, the moraine basically is the shoreline. And whatever remains, all those cobblestones, that's what remains of these glacial moraines. Interesting. Yeah. and so Glaciers that go into the ocean are really cool, by the way. Yeah. It's totally different than yes. what happens in the mountains. Oh, it's so different. So, yeah, that's neat. I mean, the other thing that you'll see at Acadia a lot is there are a lot of ponds. There's a lot of water besides the ocean on Mount Desert Island and in that area. Mm -hmm. And those are left behind by glaciers, too. Yeah, exactly. Now, what's really interesting is we've talked a lot about glaciers, but the reason that they were able to carve off so many layers is because they were so heavy. The glaciers were so heavy, and you know more about this because you were at Glacier Bay National Park. You worked up there. But when a glacier comes over, it's so heavy, it compacts the earth down, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when it recedes back, the earth kind of like rebounds. Mm -hmm. And so 
when the which glac- in Glacier Bay it's still doing, which is it's why still it's expanding. So cool. Yeah, it, the land's still rebounding from where it was covered by glaciers. It's like when you oh, so Just so to picture it, it's kind of like when you smash a sponge. Right. And then it kind of rebounds back up after you take your hand or whatever's squishing yeah. it. Yeah, memory foam. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the glaciers were so heavy, they compacted everything down so much that at its most compact, the sea level right now where the shoreline is, was 300 feet below where it is right now. And so- Oh, that's so far. Yeah. That's a huge, heavy glacier. Yeah. And so the (laughs) sea level was, so there were, there are sea caves and there was a shoreline beaches 300 feet above where it is right now. And there's still evidence of that in some places in Acadia. That's cool. So- They just pushed it down so far. Exactly. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of these uh, valleys and ponds that you were just talking about, they were deep under the ocean when they were first created. And as it rebounded back up, you know, that's when it like- it came out of the ocean, you know? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I just picture like a... It's like the lost city of Atlantis rising. Yes. Like if it were to come out of the ocean. Right. Booyah. Nailed it. Like, I don't know why I keep saying booyah. <laughs> I've said that like five times. It's awesome. That's actually not normal vernacular in my vocabulary. It's true. If you call me a jabroni, then we'll know that you're doing something <laughs> I weird. don't even know what that means. So. <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Okay, so that's pretty cool. But I mean, after it rebounded and, you know, the lost city of Atlantis, when Acadia came back up out of the ocean, I mean, over millions of years, a lot of times it's hard for stuff to kind of live where a glacier just cleared everything out. Mm -hmm. But Acadia seriously has just blossomed. (laughs) And it's amazing. And I can't call it the Garden of Eden because I already said that Yellowstone was the Garden of Eden. But... Oh, no. (laughs) Not another one. But I have a perfect example of what Acadia turned into. Okay. So this is going to lead us into fun fact number four a little bit. Okay. So have you ever heard of the Garden of Hesperides? No. Okay. It comes from Greek mythology, but it's a place of incredible beauty. But it's a little on the sidelines of much of the mainstream mythology that people know about. But a lot of people still kind of know, oh, you mentioned one specific thing and it will jog their memory. Like, oh, I know. I know about that. And uh, let me take you back a little bit. Most people know about how Zeus and a lot of the other Greek gods defeated the Titans. So if you've ever seen the Disney movie Hercules, mm-hmm. would you do the Muse song? The song the Muses sing? Hercules. <laughs> Hercules. Bless my soul. Herc was on a roll. <laughs> That was good. Yeah. That was really good. Okay. So Zeus defeated the Titans, put him in the underworld, basically. And then after he did that, he built this amazing palace on Mount Olympus where many of the gods lived. Now, Zeus and Hera had known each other for a really long time. And eventually they even got married and Hera ruled as queen of the gods. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's really important because As a wedding gift, Gaia, the goddess of the earth, gave Hera some branches for her to plant to start like her own garden or an orchard. Mm -hmm. Well, these were not just any random branches. They were apple tree branches, but not just any run-of-the-mill apple tree branches either. Once planted, these branches would grow into apple trees that would bear immortality-given golden apples. 
Okay. And so if you're familiar with any of the great quest stories from Greek mythology, there's a story where Hercules or Heracles is given a quest. And as part of his quest, he has to obtain one of these golden apples. People usually can, can remember like the golden apples in Greek mythology. Now, this is no easy task because Hera's garden was cared for by nymphs and protected by a dragon. And the garden was so well hidden that only the old man of the sea knew where it was. Oh, I see what you did there. Okay. Now, now if you've ever been to Acadia, you know how beautiful it is. Okay. And if you've not been to Acadia, prepare to be completely blown away because honestly, it's like the standard of beauty in a lot of ways. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's got mountains, beaches, shorelines, forests, rivers, lakes, ponds, oceans, streams, and amazing granite peaks with wildlife, all types of animals, you know, birds, fish, mammals, crustaceans. But no moose. But no. <laughs> the National Park Service website says that bears and moose, they do live in there, but they are rarely seen, mm-hmm. which, me, which in my opinion is just the only reason why people can sell moose stuff uh, in Bar Harbor because <laughs> sure, they're they just could like, be here. sure, moose could be here. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, it's possible. Well, I haven't seen one. <laughs> okay. Not only all of this, but you know, it, it really is absolutely beautiful. But once you visit Acadia, you know, especially in the fall, for me at least, it's like the standard by which I compare every other fall you know, for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. It's absolutely amazing. But what does this have to do with Greek mythology? I don't know. <laughs> I would like you to tell me. <laughs> I told Ash before this, I was like, I'm going to take you on a journey during one of these fun facts. Oh, like, I feel like I've been slogging through a journey. All right. <laughs> this is your quest, Ash. You're on a quest. <laughs> I've not heard those quest stories, apparently. You haven't? No, the golden, oh. owl, the golden apple didn't jog. It didn't jog anything know. for you? Okay. Well. According to the story, Hera's garden was on an island called Erythia, and you had to cross an ocean to get there. Now, most scholars believe that Erythia was somewhere near Spain, but it is my contention that Hera planted her branches a little bit further, and the old man of the sea knew where the garden was because he was the main barrier between the hero in the story and fulfilling his quest. And don't you think that Hera would have chosen a really beautiful and amazing place for her garden? Somewhere supernaturally special? Yeah. I think so. And this is, this is why. For much of the year, Acadia National Park is the first place that the sun rises in the United States of America. So fun fact number four is from October 7th to March 6th, Cadillac Mountain is the first place in the country that you can see the sunrise. And do you know what Erythia means? I don't. It means the red one. Okay. So what color is the granite on Acadia? Well, okay. <laughs> Say it. It's You said orangey pink. <laughs> <laughs> it's close enough for me. <laughs> uh, okay, I can, I can see the connection. So now I can't prove it. You know, I haven't had any luck on any of my hikes throughout the park. But it is my contention that somewhere on Mount Desert Island, deep in Acadia National Park, a garden is hidden. And now Acadia isn't really near... Greece? Yeah. <laughs> it's not near Greece. It's not no. real Greece or, or it's not even really near Europe. 
It's not really, in terms of like the country, America, it's not really near anything either. It's like the farthest point northeast in the country. And so everybody that's coming to Acadia is basically on their own quest. You know, some people had to travel over land. You know, a lot of people visit Acadia traveling over the sea. You know, they arrive here by ship and it's like we're all on a quest together. And now I'm not telling you to go bushwhacking and looking for golden apples, but I am telling you that if you take an apple to the top of Cadillac Mountain for sunrise and take a bite of it, just as the sun breaks through the horizon, it might just add a few years to your life. Or it might just be good for you (laughs) to eat an apple. An apple a day. Sure. (laughs) Yes. So I think that Acadia National Park is the garden of Hesperides from Greek mythology. It is absolutely gorgeous. The first place the sun rises for most of the year in our country, especially in the golden light of the morning as the sun rises, as you look around at all the trees and everything on the island, just makes sense. I get it. it just I, can, makes sense. I can see that. <laughs> I can see it. Stop everything just for a second. <laughs> Sir Edward. <laughs> Sir Edward Fitzgerald. Edmund. Edmund. Edmund's fit, the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> That's the name of the sea shanty. Yes. That's the name of the boat. <laughs> the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. There it is, folks. <laughs> I told you halfway through this episode, we were going to come up with that. We would remember it. Ah, yes. Boom. Um, it happened. Nailed okay. it. Whew, with, with just one fun I've fact had like remaining. every sea shanty going through my head while we've been talking. <laughs> The one that's stuck in my head is the Wellerman. Oh, yes. That one got really popular on Instagram for a while, but I liked it before it was popular. (laughs) Our kids really like the video. It started on TikTok, but it's on YouTube, but it has like a cat that does a funky beat. It bobs its head with the To the Wellerman? To the Wellerman. Oh, my gosh. That's (laughs) terrible. Okay. See, okay. We got it. A sea shanty moment with (laughs) dirt in my shoes. With dirt in in me peg leg. So, we're going to move on to fun fact number five. Now, the running theme for fun fact number five on these episodes is the human history. Yes. And it's really interesting. And this park has some some really cool things that go along with it. But, you know, we'll start, obviously, with the native peoples that have been here. And honestly, I think because so much of the geologic history, so much of the history of Acadia has been carved away by glaciers, who knows how long native peoples could possibly have been here? Right. You know, yeah. what we do know is they've been in the area for at least 12,000 years. And today, people from four tribes, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but the Maliseet, the Mi'kmaq, the Passamakudi, and the Penobscot, generally they're called the Wabanaki Indians. It's the people of the Dawn Land is kind of what they're hmm. named. Cool. They live throughout the state of Maine. But I mean... Families of these native peoples would travel through this area in birch bark canoes. Some of them were seasonal hunters and they would fish and things like that. But a lot of them lived in the area full time. Hmm. And so there's evidence of that going back at least 5,000 years of people that lived here all the time. So, I wonder if they were lobstermen. Ooh. If why they, wouldn't if you they be? Had, I know. Like you would have a ton of food to take out of the land. Nice. Around Acadia. You'd be eating real well. Yeah, man. 
That would be awesome. Yeah, interesting. Just sprinkle some lobster on uh, flatbread. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the native people been here for a long time. Now, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in when? 1492. 1492. Okay. So that's when, you know, a lot of Europeans came to the new world. But Columbus was mainly around the Caribbean, you know, a lot of the area around the Gulf of Mexico and stuff like that. The first people to come up to this area of the world in Acadia, Maine, I'll give you some clues. Actually, we're going to start off with a little thing. Were they French? Because a lot of the names in Acadia are French. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So what was New England before it was New England? I don't know. Constantinople. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> In Istanbul. No, it was... So you were exactly right. It was New France before it was New England. Okay. Basically. I didn't know so that, Maine, but... the first person, you stole my thunder. I'm sorry, but a lot of the names <laughs> in Acadia are French. Yeah. Cadillac is a French name. Is it? Probably. <laughs> I was thinking like Sierra de Mont and there's areas of Acadia that I are... think it's French and I'll tell you why in just a second. Okay. Even Mount Desert Island was once New France. And so the first known exploration of Mount Desert Island, which is the island that Acadia is aside on. Aside from the native peoples. Aside from the native they peoples. they obviously explored. Yes. We were there. here first for yeah. the European explorers and, and the colonizers that came through um, was a Frenchman named Samuel de Champlain. Mm -hmm. And he made the first important European exploration record, you know, when he made contact and he came to Mount Desert Island. He led an expedition that landed September 5th 1604. Okay. And so it took a little over a hundred years for European explorers to go from like the Caribbean area where Columbus was this far north up into New England slash New France. Slash. Didn't the Vikings like travel all around that area before <laughs> that? There is evidence of the Vikings in Newfoundland. However, okay. maybe not as far south as Acadia? Yeah, I think it's further north. I know north. a lot of it was Canada and stuff, but that's what I was thinking because Acadia is not that far from Canada. Right. A couple hours drive. Exactly. It's pretty darn close. But then after that first initial visit in 1604, in 1613, French Jesuits, welcomed by the native people, established the first French mission in America on Mount Desert Island. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, the reason you probably didn't know about it is because, like, right after the French built it, the British came along and destroyed it. Oh, okay. And so that area right there was very hotly contested between the British and the French. Because of the lobster. Because of the lobster. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone wanted the best lobster. Yeah. Yes. They all were hungry. <laughs> and so, honestly, after the mission was destroyed by the English... Mount Desert Island didn't see much action for like 150 years because the area was so hotly contested that nobody wanted to settle there because they just figured the other side would destroy it really quickly. Hmm. And so, I mean, in 1688, there was another ambitious explorer that from France that wanted a chance at settling on Mount Desert Island. And his name, he actually gave himself the name of... Sieur de la Mothe Cadillac. I don't know okay. how to pronounce any of that stuff. I should let you read but it. But he gave it the name? 
and Cadillac. <laughs> Antoine Lamette, I guess, is okay. his, his his given name that was given to him. But the one he gave himself was Sieur de la Bothe Cadillac. Oh my gosh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so I think that's where okay. Cadillac Mountain comes from. Uh-huh. But it didn't last long. He Whatever he was doing there, it, it didn't last very long. He actually moved on from Mount Desert Island and Acadia. And what he's more well known for is actually the settlement of Detroit. Ah. Yeah. And that so, is a different place to live. Than yeah, he must have gone Mount up, Desert Island. up yeah. the river to the Great Lakes and yeah. found himself a great spot. Interesting. Which makes sense. Cadillac, Detroit. Sure. Put the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. I never understood why it was called Cadillac Mountain until I was doing some reading up on this. I was like, oh, Detroit. That makes more sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So anyways, interesting. much of the land and where Acadia is and like along that coast of Maine right there changed hands a lot over the next couple hundred years because England was in a long battle with the French. They battled over land for like 150 years. And then after that war was over, so the English beat the French and they took over French Canada, Quebec and stuff like that. And then after that, the colonials, the American Revolution, we beat the British. And then we took it from them. And so there were some British lords or something like that that had some claim on the land around Mount Desert Island and and in Maine there. But after, but those claims obviously were dissolved when the Revolutionary War happened and we won. And so after that, the land kind of got divvied up and divvied up and divvied up and people settled in the area and stuff like that. But for a long time, nobody wanted it because they were afraid of losing it so quickly down yeah which happened a lot (laughs) so now that brings us to kind of a new chapter in about 1820 settlers began finding their way to the area it was a little bit it wasn't as dangerous you know what weren't countries fighting over you know the new land and the new world and things like that and so in 1820 settlers started to find their way to the area Farming, lumber, shipbuilding, and fishing all started to become pretty great industries in the area. And that's when this kind of new chapter begins. And I find it really interesting because I think that once people reach kind of a certain amount of comfort or wealth and security, it seems that they begin to really appreciate the beauty around them. Mm-hmm. And so when they're not just trying to find their next meal. Yeah, exactly. Once nature isn't trying to kill you, it's a little bit easier to appreciate it. Yeah. And so I think the people kind of in the mid-1800s, they started to really appreciate the beauty of this area and Acadia and Mount Desert Island because a lot of artists found their way to this area. And there's lots of some beautiful paintings of, you know, the pink granite in these granite mountains and the forests, you know, going out into the ocean. And so there were a lot of painters during the mid-1800s that started coming here for inspiration. And journalists would find their way there as well, and then they would write about what they were enjoying and seeing. And then, all of a sudden, lots of people from the cities and, and things were wanting to take they a quest. Their country, ex- their country escape. Yeah, exactly. People from Boston, people from Philadelphia, a lot of these eastern cities, big eastern cities, people were taking trips up to the coast of Maine, you know, and a lot of them wanted to come especially to Mount Desert Island because it was so beautiful with the mountains. Cadillac Mountain was so gorgeous. And the locals ended up calling them rusticators. And Mm. so kind of a different word for tourist, but that was what they called them. (laughs) And so what these rusticators would do 
is they would basically just like travel up there, find a local fisherman, a local farmer, somebody that had a house, and they would be like, hey, do you mind if we lodge with you for a couple of weeks? And then if they- That's one way to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just knock on some doors. Do you have any space for us? We'll pay you. We'll pay you really well, probably. Yeah. And so summer after summer, you know, if you found a farmer or somebody that had, that would open their doors to you, you would go back summer after summer after summer. And so it became like a tradition for a lot of people in these eastern cities. They, these rusticators would come up, live with the locals for a while and during the summer, during the nice cooler weather, and then they would go back home. Hmm. Well, by 1880, there were about 30 hotels in a, that were kind of accepting the overflow of a lot of these people's homes. And so <laughs> everybody's houses was full of, of rusticators. And then all the hotels were full. And then... It was about the late 1880s and the 1890s when a select group of people got like crazy wealthy. You know, like we're talking about people like the Fords, the Rockefellers, Morgans, the Vanderbilts, Carnegie's, you know, a lot of these people, they were super wealthy and they wanted to go to this place too, but they didn't really, they weren't too hot on the idea of just staying in some fisherman's house with him for a while. Mm-hmm. And so what a lot of these super wealthy people would do is they would come up here and they would buy up a portion of the land and they just built these massive, gorgeous, elegant estates and they would call them their cottages. Yeah. You know, <laughs> kind of a charming, quaint name, you know, <laughs> for these massive estates that they would build on this land. But to that point when, I don't know, things really started to change in Acadia when people really were given the opportunity to appreciate the beauty and just everything about Acadia right there. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool. But to kind of put it into historical context as well, I mean, this was happening during the 1880s and the 90s when these wealthy people were moving in. But Yellowstone was created in 1872. You know, Mm -hmm. Sequoia and Yosemite, 1890, Mount Rainier, 1899, Crater Lake, 1902. So in the country, there was already a really somewhat established conservation movement, (laughs) right? But, you know, what's interesting is most of these national parks that were being established were far away in the West. And nobody owned any land there. Exactly. That's my point. Like if you think to to yourself, what's the big difference? Why are we having all these national parks way out in the West when most of the population, I mean, they're beautiful things in the East. You know, but a lot like, of it was already settled. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So why hadn't really anything been set apart in the East? It's because so much of the land was private already. And out in the West, there was still tons of public land. Yeah. So public land versus private land. It's easy for the government to be like, yeah, sure. Let's set aside two million acres right. for Yellowstone. <laughs> right. You know, versus like anywhere back East, it's like super hard to even get a it's like community there might park. be yeah there might be three acres <laughs> <laughs> exactly <that's> available <laughs> yeah especially when you consider it's like the the revolutionaries you know we kicked the british out we sold off the land to a bunch of people they subdivided it and sold it they subdivided it and sold it and it got over and over and over again and suddenly you have hundreds maybe thousands of individual parcels of land all over this place how in the world do you set up a national park there? But that's why I think like it's easier. It almost, it's so much easier, even though there were challenges out West to setting up national parks and people sometimes didn't really want it to happen. Some people really did. But in the East Coast and the Ken Burns documentary about the national parks, 
I think does a really amazing job of kind of explaining and, and showing the local support and all the community efforts mm-hmm. and how the parks back east, like Great Smoky Mountains, especially in Acadia, you know, it took a lot of effort, some serious like lobbying efforts and a ton of money yeah. to get it done. Yeah. And so I think that I love these Eastern National Parks because especially in Acadia, it's really like a story of people wanting to protect and then putting their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so a lot of the people that wanted to do this were people like John D. Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. And I think for you and me, he's probably one of our favorite rich guys in history. Well, yeah. Well, because he, you know, saved the Tetons. <laughs> so that makes him my favorite already. But exactly. yeah, I mean, that's one thing about if you have money and you care about these places. And this is something we always try to do with Dirt in My Shoes, too. We give a portion of all of our sales to these parks because they do need money. Yeah to continue protecting them, you know? And so that's a big deal. And and in the East, especially, they had to fight so hard yeah. for that and put out so much money because basically what these rich people did is they bought up the land and donated it. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to have just a massive amount of resources to be able to do something like that. But without them doing that, we wouldn't have Acadia National Park. Exactly. And so that's why I think, you know, it's it's really cool to learn about that history as far as Acadia National Park being established in that way. It's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they didn't have to do that for a lot of the Western parks, but the Eastern ones they did. They had to fight really hard and people had to be willing to put a lot of money towards getting these parks established. Right. And Truth be told, it wasn't just like the super duper rich people that had to do this too. There was a lot of people. Or that had been there for a while, probably. Exactly. And, yeah. A lot of people that had that formed was their, their home, their livelihood, mm-hmm. everything. They'd been there maybe for generations, yeah. you know, that donated their land to this process, yeah. to, this pr- to this idea of preserving this place because they want future generations to be able to enjoy what they didn't have, which was right. kind of like maybe an established national park to yeah. see the land in a different way than they could. And I, I think that's really neat. And this is fun fact number five. Fun fact number five is that all of Acadia's 41,645 acres were privately donated. That's so cool. Yeah. And like you said, I like how you pointed out it wasn't just the super wealthy. It was people who had lived there for a long time who probably didn't have a lot. Yeah. But it meant something to them to be able to keep it beautiful. Yeah, exactly. In the area around the Beehive Trail, you know, mm-hmm. there was a lady, I don't know how wealthy she was or anything like that, but her contribution was like 150 acres but or it something was the like Beehive that. Beehive Trail. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I mean, that's a yeah. massive contribution. Yeah. You know, how cool is that? You own part of the Beehive Trail. That's yeah. one of the most beautiful places in Acadia. Whereas people like John D. Rockefeller, I mean, he donated 11,000 acres. Mm-hmm. So literally one-fourth of all the acreage of Acadia National Park is from him, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I think this idea is kind of touching. You know, the idea of giving something to future generations that you didn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's really cool. So the idea of like making this national park, you know, is something that these people didn't have. And so giving it to future generations, I think, is really touching. 
But one thing that I think is really neat as well, and this comes back to John D. Rockefeller, is he wanted not only to give future generations something that he didn't have, but he wanted to give them something that he did have too. And that's where the carriage roads come in Mm -hmm. for me, because he was able to see the land, you know, he was part of the carriage class. Granted, cars were around during this time and he could drive cars and stuff like that, but he was part of a class of people, you know, that got to enjoy things that were really nice. And seeing Acadia through a horse-drawn carriage, you know, being pulled through, it's just absolutely beautiful. He actually built 50 miles worth of carriage roads and then donated it to the park so that people could enjoy something that he actually did have. The way that he enjoyed the park, he wanted people in future generations to enjoy that too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really cool and really neat. Finally, in 1919, after tons of community efforts, tons of people donating their land and things like that, lobbying efforts in Washington, D.C. and everything like that, finally in 1919, Acadia was made a national park. Woohoo! Nice. And we're all part of this process today, you know? Like you talked about the parks still need help. And so when we go to national parks, when we buy our parks pass, when you buy that parks pass, that money goes to the parks where you purchase that parks pass. And, you know, a lot of these national parks, they also have some nonprofit organizations that do a lot of work in the parks. You can donate to those as well. And there's lots of ways that you can help the national parks Mm -hmm. and they still need us today. It's just a great way to give back. Yeah, I think that's what I love about Acadia. Despite its beauty and everything, there's just such a cool story there of how it was created and how regular people and other, you know, people who are really wealthy too, but like all of us can give back to these parks and make something cool. Yeah. Which I think is really the spirit of the national parks. Right. Is that we all have something to contribute to make them better. So mm-hmm. that's what I love about Acadia. I loved those fun facts. Those were great. I learned a ton, especially about <laughs> the rocks. So much rocks. Oh, stuff. my gosh. A lot of rocks. <laughs> golden apples. Yeah. You know? oh, yeah. Sea shanties. <laughs> sea shanties. Got absolutely. a lot in there. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Yeah. If you have not been to Acadia, hopefully that inspires you to finally get that trip planned and try to get out there take a quest to acadia yeah because you will not be disappointed it is absolutely magical thanks for exploring the national parks with us please share like and subscribe and if you need any help planning your own trip click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com see you next week same time same place and don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes 